one. The Inside Influence team and I are taking an eight-week sabbatical this winter, or summer if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, to generally reset, recalibrate, and refill our creative tanks. Now, for many of us, myself included, that means traveling across the world to see family members where it has been far too long between hugs. To keep you fueled while we're gone, fear not, we have traveled back through the archives, back through time, and pulled out four of our favorite Inside Influence episodes of all time. Now, I can also hand on heart say that each of these four episodes had in some way radically changed how I now show up, lead, and influence. If you're new to the Inside Influence crew, enjoy the ride. If you are a long-time listener, these are definitely conversations that are worth listening to for a second time. Stay safe, and we will see you back with our brand new season in August. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, I want to kick off today by talking a little bit about the word devotion. Songs are written about it, poetry includes it, plays are all about it, films are made about it. We use it in association with our family, our children, our partners, but colleagues and employees, yeah, not so much. Now, sure, we all want the best of the people we work with, but how many leaders can truly say that they are devoted to the success of their people? How many of us have worked for leaders where we could truly say that we felt like they were devoted to our success? And as leaders, how frequently do we feel that devotion? Do we feel that pull or are we distracted by every fire that we feel like we need to put out? Now, success is the key word here because helping somebody else become the best person that they can be on the pitch, off the pitch, so they thrive under your stewardship and for long after is one of the most vital forms of influence that I think that there is. And I also feel like we all want that. That's why we show up. In our heart of hearts, we have that intention for every single interaction. The question is, what derails us and how do we get it back on track? Now, my guest today, she is striving for more of us to do just that. Frances Fry is an American academic and author. She is the UPS Foundation Professor of Service Management and Senior Associate Dean for Executive Education at Harvard Business School. I'm so glad I got that right. She is also the author of the recently released, in fact, I think just released book, Unleashed, The Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. On top of that, and actually the thing that made her stand out to me the most when we were doing our research and talking in the lead up to this interview is that she also took that leap from academia into enterprise and found herself in Silicon Valley as the very first senior vice president for leadership and strategy at Uber. Now, that would be interesting enough, but that happened at a time where Uber was under fire from pretty much every corner of the planet. I don't know if you remember that, 
But it was a time when Uber was actually a dirty word for drivers, for customers within industry. And she was brought in with that exact intention in mind. Her job description was to restore trust at a time when it was an all-time catastrophic low. Now, her first decision, her first decision that she made in that role should tell you a lot about who she is, about her strength, her integrity, and her intention. She committed to wear an Uber t-shirt every day, and I'm talking every day, weekends included, until the people working alongside her were as proud to wear it as she was. Now that, again, tells you a lot about where she comes at this topic from, but more on it later. What brought her first into my world was actually her TED Talk, How to Build and Rebuild Trust, where her insightful and more than anything else practical views on building trust in a world where it's in short supply actually became the first time that I had viewed trust as something tangible, something that we can all build, something that has a process that can be followed quickly and predictably. I think up until that point, trust for me was one of those ethereal things up in the ceiling that you only really knew about it once it had gone. In this interview, we cover that amongst many other things. But firstly, we cover unapologetic leadership, what it is, what it looks like, and why it has nothing to do with refusing to take responsibility, and in fact, quite the opposite. Devotion. Yep, that word again. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, then just stick with it. What does it take to be deeply devoted to the wild success of another human being? More success than they could possibly ever achieve on their own. And then if we can do it once, which we can, how do we take that impact and harness it to create what Francis calls a cascade effect, where it goes on to transform entire teams, organizations, and possibly an entire nation? How you set and hold high standards without disconnecting from the person you're trying to support. Now, this is one I have definitely struggled with over the years. How do you play bad cop and still make sure someone feels like you have their back? The taking and giving of radical responsibility. Love that term. This one I haven't actually stopped thinking about since the interview. It's become almost a filter through which I'm running decisions at the moment. And it's been a total game changer. We also talk about the trust triangle, what the three points of the triangle are and how to achieve them and maintain them. This is the practical part of trust that I talked about. And how to look square on and without flinching at what Francis calls the devastating data. That data is, is the information that informs you as to where you currently sit in the eyes of your team, client base, or community. And then how to use that information if it's not positive, rather than a brick to beat yourself with, but as a benchmark so that you know exactly when to celebrate. Now, leadership is hard at the best of times for anybody who has attempted it or does it on a daily basis. However, in the middle of a pandemic on the edge of a recession when you're miles away from those you are trying to serve and support, I'm, I'm not actually sure it gets much harder. And if I took anything from this conversation, it's the calm and wholehearted way in which Francis approaches the tough stuff, the messy stuff, the hard stuff, the devastating data. And if nothing else, I hope that that carries with you for the rest of your day. In the meantime, enjoy my conversation with a force in the world of trust and devotion, Francis Fry. Welcome to the podcast, Francis Fry. So lovely to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. 
we before we pressed record here, we both gave each other permission just to be a little bit. What was the word you used? Un, uh, not as buttoned up. Not as buttoned up. I think <laughs> this is a not as buttoned up time. So yes. let's let's just do that. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off with a question that I usually kick the podcast off with at the moment. I co- I go through phases of of what I'm interested in. And at the moment, it's ideas that are having the most influence on the people that I'm talking to, because I find that interesting people just gravitate naturally towards interesting ideas. So what's an idea that's having an impact on you at the moment or an influential idea you've come across recently? Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, I just got to read uh, an early draft of a book called The Remote Work Revolution by Sadal Neely. And that remote work is now a revolution is a super interesting idea that this is not a, a temporary um, time that we're in. It's uh, And it's not simply taking what we used to do and simply moving it remote. We're going to have to rethink and we get to rethink uh, all aspects of work. And that's pretty darn exciting. I'm, I'm seeing that everywhere now. It was, I think it was a question in the beginning, you know, will we just slot back in or will we, you know, will this create a whole new kind of environment for everybody? And everybody that I'm talking to is saying, no, this is the, the previous way is done now. Like it, it's, I think at it's the done. highest levels. I think it's done. Yeah. Yeah. So what, where are we going to end up? Any ideas? Oh, I'm I'm many things, but a futurist is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much where we are now, crouching in crouching in rooms. I'm sure they'll come up with something better. No, I think we're gonna listen. I think everybody is gonna figure out how to do this, and we're gonna get to the absurdity of how we used to do things. Like there's people that would commute two hour or three hours in I just don't think that's going to happen very much anymore um and we're gonna the way in which we're going to look for houses is going to be different because we don't need much space uh private space but we need some private space so instead of this being a closet <laughs> this is going to be the studio well I'm I want to jump into your work because I'm just such a such a huge fan of the work that you do um the book that you've released recently is called Unleashed, the Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. And I just, I got stuck on the word un- unapologetic out of that. I got stuck on many words, but the first one, talk to me about unapologetic leadership. What what does that look like? Yeah, so if, if you take our definition of leadership, which, which is that leadership is not about the leader, it's about others, and it's about you know, empowering others, uh, that will be an unusual twist. And we don't want you to ask for permission. We don't want you to do it sheepishly. We want you to do it with pride. And uh, so it's it's not unapologetic about bad things. It's unapologetic about doing things differently in um, in service of others. But it's an energy, isn't it? To be unapologetic. It's not like you said, it's not going out there and, and just doing anything you like without the accountability of apology it's it's an energy to which you do things yeah and it's um you know there's a there's a few books coming out this fall with the word unapologetic in it and i've i've long loved the word there's there has been you know i particularly look at women and people of color and there's just been too much hesitation and if we could remove that hesitation uh the world would be a better place just go in there and start moving 
just start moving. Start moving. Um, one of the one of the concepts from the book, which again is one of those ones that I read, and it's it's simple, but it's so hard, is setting. So you start by setting one other person up for success. And yeah. I read that, and I was like, of course, you know, you set someone else for success, and for a control freak like me, that's that's <laughs> just. Sounds like something I want to do, but then you know, really, in my in my heart of hearts. So, you learned a lot of counterintuitive things about how to do that. Can you can you walk through some of those things that you found? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. So the um, and the way to, it's it's one person at a time, and if you can do one person at a time, then what naturally follows is how to do it for teams. But when we are going to set one person up for success, and we mean wild success like more success than they could achieve on their own. And this all goes back to the foundation of Toni Morrison's awesome quote, which is uh, the, the modified version of it is once you get some of once you get power that you richly deserve, the first thing you should do is empower someone else. And so if we're going to empower one person at a time and help them achieve their best, we found that there are two levers that our instincts are that they, you can only do one at a time, but real unleashing of other people happens when you do them both simultaneously. And that is setting high standards for people, which isn't a surprise. People thrive in the presence of high standards. And it's having revealing your deep devotion to another person's success. And that one is a little bit harder for people to do. And when we do do it, we insidiously lower the standards and that doesn't help anyone. So it's how do you achieve both at the same time? So I think it is counterintuitive at first, but we try to put in enough resonant examples so that once you see the world this way, you can't unsee it. Can you give me one of those examples? Sure. So uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people, particularly when they haven't had a good night's sleep, they might communicate their very high standards for other people. Um, and they will be perceived as a little bit severe because they're like, it's high standards or else, or else I won't like you as much, or else I won't, you know, give you as many perks as, as versus high standards and deeply devoted to your success so that you can achieve even higher standards. And so a way that that happens is that someone who's in this, and we call it the quadrant of severity, high standards and low devotion. If you have like really deep, curious inquiry about another person, that's what it takes to reveal that you're deeply devoted to them. Like asking them and and really trying to uncover, like how would you like your CV to look different in three months? What are the developmental opportunities that I can do? Are there non-value added things that you're doing? Can I remove those from your plate and what like enriching thing can I put back on it? So it's, it's setting high standards. It's not, it's not lowering the bar, but it's doing it in a way that's curated for you. And so that's, that's, that's one example. You also said, I mean, you, you alluded there that, that once you can do it for one, it's almost like beta testing. Like once you can do it for one, you can do it for a team, you can do it for an entire organization. So that's, you can scale that up from there. Are there any keys to scaling it? Yeah, there sure are, because you could do it one at a time, and that's with high standards, deep devotion. When you're going to do it with a team, particularly a team that has any members that are different than you, um, 
then you have to learn how to be super inclusive of those differences. And so there we talk a lot about how do you, how does inclusion manifest? Uh, and we all know that diverse teams, teams of difference, outperform homogenous teams. That's what all of the research says. Having said that, I have seen diverse teams underperform homogenous teams. So diversity alone is not sufficient. But when we are inclusive of the diversity, that's when we get to outperform. So when you're doing this at the set of teams, you really have to underline the word inclusion and learn how can I genuinely be inclusive. And when you get to the highest level of inclusion, that's when people feel like they are of this place, like they genuinely belong. You also said you believe, um, I, I think I read it in an interview somewhere, that you believe it can be done for a nation. Well, you're in Australia. I guess you'd have to have pretty strong binoculars, but you don't have to look very far. I think New Zealand is a pretty good example of it. Isn't it just? Is it like yeah, the leadership in, yeah. in that nation? Is, oh, it, my is a case study just waiting to happen? And here's the thing that I, so the first chapter of the book is, it, it's not about you. It's like leadership is really about the performance of other people. And I did this experiment where I just, from my observation, lined up all of the nation's leaders from top to bottom in those that I thought it's all about them in, and those I thought it's all about others. And then I also looked at their performance on COVID. Startlingly strong, startlingly strong correlation. And I think you have one of the most magnificent leaders, not just of our time, but of all time uh, in at, in New Zealand. And it's clearly uh, she I mean, it, it, she may appear flustered, but it's it's easier to not appear flustered when it's not about you because she's not doesn't appear to me to be concerned about her performance. She doesn't appear to me to be concerned about, you know, popularity contests. She appears to me to be deeply invested in setting her country and all of the people in her country up for success and being an awesome world citizen. Mm. And I think that part of that, one of the things I've really noticed, is when you are in service of others truly, and I love that word, deep devotion, the the bar for your own perfection can, can come down. Oh, it's such a gift. It's such a gift yeah, I mean, to she's... women in particular. She's doing these Facebook Lives from her home. She's in it. And that's got nothing to do with party politic tricks, I don't believe. That's It's a moment where you go, you know what, whatever it takes to get this job done. I don't care how perfect I look. I don't care if it's a little bit messy around the edges when it has to be because I'm not here for that purpose. I'm here for the purpose, for the service of everybody else. I'm not – right. I don't care if I'm crouched around a microphone <laughs> in a closet. <laughs> now, let's go back to power for a second. I mean, again, it's something you alluded to that – that are part of unleashing everybody around you and unleashing the potential that exists is making our power contagious. And I think for a lot yeah. of leaders, and I was actually just talking to one yesterday, a lot of leaders, that's really hard because they feel like they're almost the North Star, right? It's the North Star challenge where everything's going well while they're in the room or while they're in the building and everybody can, can kind of use them to navigate but when they leave the building, you know, accountability goes with them, you know, permission to use power goes with them. What's the, what's the antidote to that, to that North yeah, Star so Challenge? Yeah, 
And it's and I'll give a little context before I answer, which is that the, so the definition of leadership we use is leadership is about making others better as a result of your presence and having it last into your absence. So this is this is a, a, a key to leadership. And I understand why people have um, not focused on it, because if the team is great in my presence and it's bad in my absence, particularly people that are data driven, they're like, well, I'm statistically significant. Like, I matter. And that when can I'm feel there, good, good, right? When it's, and it can feel good. It's so ego nourishing. Um, it's you don't have to back the lens out all that much to realize. Oh my goodness! But it's such a, a, a wasted like lack of progress on the sake of the company or on the sake of humanity. So, figuring out how first that the ambition is for people to thrive in your absence, and then preparing them for that in our presence. Now, one of the amazing thing that's, you know, the, the travesty of this global pandemic is that we're all in one another's absence a lot. The amazing thing is the experimentation that's going on for people figuring out how to set one another up for success. Um, and I think this is also why I was drawn to Sadal's remote work revolution that, because, uh, you know, you can't really see as much on Zoom as you can on uh, in person. And so the advice I often give to people is imagine if you were blind. So you're not able to pick up any visible cues. Now, how would you know how people are doing? Mm. And I think that's not a bad metaphor for when we're remotely because we can't really read the room on Zoom. And I think as a leader, especially if you're sat either in the same room or in the vicinity of your team, you're often walking past, right? Like you're walking past or you glance yeah. up, you can see, you can, if you're in any way kind of connected in with your team, you can often feel, okay, there's a bit of a, yeah. there's something going on in the corner of that room. I don't know what it is, but I think I'd better go. <laughs> so, but Zoom removes all of that. And so that metaphor of being blind is completely accurate. And not only does Zoom room, does it remove it, but it's also, and I don't know what it's like for you, but they're not stationary. So I can't, like at HBS, we have everyone sit in the same seat. So we really get to know them. We like remember what they say. I can't get people to show up in the same quadrant on Zoom, no matter how hard I try. Like you're here and then you're over there. Like you keep going around the Brady Bunch uh, circle. So we really have to come up with new ways of doing it. And I find using our words is the best way to do it. It always amazes me with this podcast that the ad, the insights and the mastery that comes out from, from the guests often so so easily correlates with parenting advice, which is, you know, oh, we know yeah. we know this stuff when we're trying to raise a small human. Like we know things like use your words, asking questions, getting down on someone's stuff. The basics of con connection influence and persuasion and doing it with deep devotion and compassion. We know it. But once we start applying it in the grown-up world, for some reason the wheels fall off. It's, it's really interesting. Um, talk to me about radical responsibility. So uh. both the taking of radical responsibility, you know, again, it's like that Jocko Wilnick book, Extreme Ownership, and also the giving of radical responsibility, you know, the expectation that I expect you to take radical responsibility for your role and your place in this team? So I'll do the first one first, which is, um, you know, a lot of environments will say, well, look, we're going to hire a lot of people and it's going to be sink or swim. And so, you know, whether or not you make it, it's really, it's up to you. 
Um, and I really uh, don't like those kinds of environments for a bunch of reasons. But one is they are typically very unfair. And that is we give, you know, the people that make it, the great swimmers in our sink or swim metaphor, they received a lot of help. They didn't really understand it as help and the givers didn't see it. But we we provide life preservers and, and float devices to people that are like us without even knowing it. And people that are different than us, it really is sink or swim. So just from a fairness perspective, I don't like it. I also just don't like it as an abdication of leadership. Like I like if imagine and we say to you, imagine if you took radical responsibility for the success of others. Mm-hmm. Like and it's not lowering the bar. Like what would that look like? And one of the examples that really hit this home for me, so HBS has like ridiculously low promotion rates. And it's been very you know, it would say them in like other top schools and be like, but say it with a bit of pride. And we're like, oh, it's always been like this. And to me, that's like, wow, I'm not proud of an unimproving operating system. We've gotten no better at developing people in 50 years. That doesn't make sense. And then I say, but go look at Caltech. And Caltech is as excellent as any other university on the planet. And their promotion rates are like 70%. And Harvard's promotion rate might be like 10%. And, and Harvard you know, in Harvard and MIT and Stanford, like all really low and Caltech really high, which shows it's possible if you take radical responsibility for the success of other people. Um, And then I'm like, huh, so are we choosing not to? And is that the right way to set the conditions for people to thrive? I find it super, super provocative. And just as a question, you know, what would radical responsibility look like here? Yeah. For this issue, for this topic, for this human being, for this team, you know, for myself, I just love it as a question. Yeah, I I do too. And to keep asking it on a on a daily on a daily basis. Yeah. So for the giving part, I think that is, um, you know, giving radical responsibility. I'm I'm a little less inclined for that because. It sounds, I don't want it to feel like it's severity. I want it to feel like it's high standards and deep devotion. So as long as I, I mean, I want to set you up for success and I want you to fly, but I don't want it to feel like it's without a net. If there are any pebbles in the way, I want you to know that you can get help with them. So I I really feel it for the taking of radical responsibility for others, of the giving radical responsibility I just want to make sure the radical is soft enough in that case, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And so what's, you might not, you might not know, but is there better languaging around that in terms of how we communicate what we want to give to another individual in terms of, again, making our power contagious? Yeah. So I think that the, I mean, what I want other people to do is to uh, achieve the best version of themselves and set the conditions for others. So I kind of want it to cascade forward as opposed to play back. Walk me through that. Sure. So if I set someone else up for success and I take radical responsibility for their success, what I want them to do in turn is take radical responsibility for the success of the people on their team. Got it. And I want them. And so if each one of us is in service of another group, as opposed to having a reciprocal relationship with one another. I think that's actually the key. I love that. Um, 
I want to I want to move into I want to move into trust now because mm. a lot of this starts and ends with trust. Um, and a lot of your work starts starts and ends with trust. You you had said you know that trust is the key to unprecedented human progress. I mean, I'm guessing you can take human out of there and put organizational, team, individual. Why is that? Why is it the foundation? Yeah. Country, you know, nation, international. Um, Because it's not the foundation of all interaction. We have tons of interaction with which no progress is made. But if we're going to make progress and forward progress, that doesn't have to be relitigated, right? So it's not fits and starts, but we're making forward progress in a really timely manner. Um, then the base, what the foundation of trust allows us to do is it's like the it's an accelerant. And so I, it's easiest for me to talk about with the absence of it. So if I don't trust you, I may say yes now, but I'm going to go check with other people and I'm going to come back. And then I'm going to say, you know what? I didn't really mean yes. I kind of meant maybe. And why don't you do this and this? And I meant yes, but you know what? Let's delay it a little longer. And so what trust does is it allows us to remove all of those things and genuinely make progress, like to genuinely progress forward. Uh, and without, without it, the and the word that comes to my mind is that we're just constantly relitigating and we're constantly compromising. And so in that way, I, I do feel like it's the foundation of, of all great progress. I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk about trust, um, especially over the, the past year or so. And you look at global politics, you look at transparency within organizations. Here we had, you know, a global, not a global, sorry, a royal commission. And you know, some would say that trusted is at is at a you know unprecedented low, and I think it gets thrown around a lot as a word, and it can sometimes feel very ethereal to me. And you can't just can't put your finger on it; it's nothing practical. It's hard to weave it through my daily decisions or look for it in other people. And what I love about what you did is you you've just done this beautiful job of bottom lining it and getting absolutely practical about what are the components of trust and how that can they be worked on can you walk through how you define trust in those components sure and i believe trust can like i believe every one of us like once we get the benefit of the lens that we're about to talk about every one of us can build more trust tomorrow than we have today like it's that quick and because we found out and the big breakthrough was that trust has three component parts so we call it a trust triangle if it had four component parts, we'd call it a trust quadrangle. Um, but it has, um, and we we look forward to finding the fourth. But with testing this in over a hundred thousand people in all locations, it's still only been three. And that is, you are more likely to trust me if you believe, if you sense it's the real me speaking to you. I can lose your trust if I say something that you sense I don't believe. Maybe my boss said, here, go tell the team this. And I don't believe, and but I feel like I'm a good team player, so I go say it anyway. And that's authenticity. And authenticity is a word that a lot of people have different definitions. Ours is super clear. Do you believe it's the real me speaking to you? If yes, it's a component of trust. It won't get us all the way there, but its absence takes away trust. Do you believe I have a rigorous plan? Do you have evidence that I have a rigorous plan? It's the real me 
but would you let me drive? Like, does it? <laughs> All right. It's the real me, and it's a solid plan. Am I sufficiently in it for you, or does it feel like it's all about me? And that's empathy. And so when all three of those are working, we have trust. And any time trust breaks down, individual to individual, organization to constituent nations, we can always trace it back to authenticity, logic, or empathy. And the beautiful thing is we have very specific guidance about how to overcome those. The important thing is the prescriptions are super different for each of the three. So it can't be like, oh, the last time trust broke down, I tried this. You got to go, you have to be more specific than that. The last time there was an empathy wobble, and we call these the challenges wobbles because we we want to remove the notion that there's liquid cement on it. We can actually overcome it. Um, and so whichever, whatever getting in the way, we take a great deal of humility, but super optimistic, pragmatic, um, uh, prescriptions. We feel like they're secret memos on how to overcome it. I just, I love that. And when you said authenticity, so authenticity, rigor in your logic and empathy. And the, the reason I love rigor in your logic in, in the middle there is because I, I feel like I have a lot of conversations about authenticity, um, and I feel like sometimes authentic, the term authentic or authenticity can sometimes be used as a catch-all for not showing up as your best self. For, you know, well, I was just being authentic. I was authentically, you know, falling apart in that moment. That's fine. But when it comes to leadership, I would rather you be intentional. Like bring your authentic self, but be intentional in how you're showing up. And that's the, the rigor, right? That's the, the rigor of your logic. Well, rigor and empathy, like if, so let's say that I'm, I'm a largely authentic person, but when I bring that last 90, a hundred percent of authenticity, it's too much for people to bear. I'm sacrificing empathy around the edges. So, you know, you might have to trim your authenticity a little bit when you're in it for others. Um, so I think it's not that I want to be inauthentic. I can't pretend I'm not, but it's okay to leave some of that authenticity at home, just like a little bit. And that's an amazing counter, the empathy part. I hadn't thought about that. But you, you also have to think about how your complete authenticity in that moment is going to make other people feel around you and how it's going to impact their state and their ability to go forward and move forward in a, in a strong and resourced way. That's exactly right. I want to just put this into just put this into a, into a real life context at the moment. So, you were hired to to turn around Uber's culture. So you were Uber's first SVP of leadership and strategy, which again, you know, I, to have been a fly on the wall during that time. But firstly, what what took what took a professor to an organization that, in your own words, was metaphorically and literally on fire from a trust standpoint? Yeah, so a bunch of, you know, happenstance, but the the reason I ultimately decided to go was that it was uh, you know, there it was challenged. I think everyone around the world knew it was challenged. Um and I thought if we can fix it here, we give license and perhaps obligation to anyone who has less significant challenges. And so I like learning at the extremes. I also like fixing things at the extremes so that it provides a roadmap and optimism for everyone who's not at the extreme. And Uber, in my mind, was 
in June of 2017, it really could have gone either way. Um, and many of its problems were cultural. And nine months later, it didn't have any of those problems anymore. You made, didn't you make a public commitment to wearing an Uber t-shirt every single day until every employee begin. was prepared to wear an Uber t-shirt? Yeah, and the, and the context of that was important, which is that, you know, in the beginning, Uber was like a, a super proud, like people were really proud to be there. When I got there in June of 2017, employees wouldn't even admit to Uber drivers that they worked at the company. They went to less social gatherings because the topic was always Uber and they were, they had, you know, a sh shame at working there. So this once proud and I thought like awesome organization and I thought the individuals were awesome. Like if you look at the changes that were made, we separated from like 20 people in June of 2017 of, I don't know, between 10 and 15,000 so the vast, 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 vast majority of the people were awesome. And I'm not saying the people that were separated were awesome, but they just needed to be separated with. So these were awesome people. This was creating, I thought, an amazing service, and they weren't proud. And I was super proud. I left Harvard to go there. Like, I was super proud to be there. And I wanted that pride to be contagious. And I wanted the whole world to know I was there because I wanted them to give me feedback. So I would, so I wore an Uber shirt every day for nine months. Um, uh, and when I, by the time I left working there full time, and then I stayed on as an advisor, uh, you like Uber shirts were prominent again, and they're prominent again now. And that sounds like a small test. It's actually a really good test, particularly in Silicon Valley with casual dress. Now, one of the one of the issues, actually, no. I'm going to go somewhere different. One of the hardest things to do, I think, when you're in a position where you know things are wrong, something's not right, is to face face the dragon of whatever it is. And you call that collecting the devastating data. You know, what was when you were at Uber, what did you identify early on in, in collecting that kind of devastating data? So, so I think that the, you know, there was, it was pretty well documented, the really rocky relationships with regulators. While we had been devoted to riders since the inception, the, it, it often felt like a fixed pie between riders and drivers and drivers weren't benefiting. And then riders got really upset uh, with us about how we were treating drivers and so there was all like really super ample evidence of uh, how people felt about the brand. Um, internally, there were some demographic tendencies about who was thriving. Uh, and then externally with the relationships, the sentiment just wasn't there. And honestly, there were achievement, like ridership was going down, like the achievement was. So I'd say every metric was going in the wrong direction. And I very much like knowing, you know, taking the snapshot of the before, because I really want to know when do we get to celebrate? And so tell me, you know, so if there's like gaps between one group and another, when the gaps are closed, we get to celebrate. If the slope used to be positive, and now it's negative, when it's positive, again, we get to celebrate. So we took a very clear, a clear eyed snapshot of, uh, and we knew we were done when all of the when all everything was going in the right direction. And you said, you know, you 
when you've got that devastating data, don't don't release it straight away. Like yeah, don't, so don't just hand it really, out. Yeah. No, no, no. Because here's the, here's here's why that, um, and I would see this on campuses. Like I, I'll tell you the part that was most uh, heartbreaking for me um, when there was a, a a few years ago when presidents of all universities were super concerned about sexual harassment on campus as they should be and as they hadn't been, and so they uh, they did a a big study. Uh, and the data came in at like 11.50 at night and they shared the data at like 11.55. And I, I said to myself, oh no, we're about to waste two years because if you just send out the devastating data, people are going to, is it true? Is it not true? How did you ask this question? You should also have asked this question, go out and get this data. I mean, it just, an organization usually obsesses over the data for about two years. But instead, instead of if you received it on, you know, wait a month and in that month work furiously to pilot super optimistic ways forward. And by optimistic, by like that it's not condemning anyone. It's just looking for ways to overcome it and then release the data and the successful pilot um, and then let the community come up with even better ways to improve. So instead, over those two years, people are pointing fingers and they're arguing and they're not really digesting. It's a waste of two years. But if you waited a month or however long it took for you to do a pilot and release that and the data, you just removed that unnecessary wallowing uh, in the data and instead have all of those that beautiful share of mind aimed at finding better and better ways of overcoming the challenges that are so clearly apparent from the data. But, I mean, that applies universally, doesn't it? The most influential thing to do is not to walk into the room, walk into the arena with the problem and share the problem far and wide. The idea is to go in with ideas and solutions that you at least have an idea might work, have some faith will work. And here's the thing, I, like they don't have to be the ultimate ones, but you have to give us optimism um, with it. And because if you just set the organization free and I in today with the move towards transparency, like everyone wants more and more transparency, me too, but not uh, but I would definitely hold data for a month if I could pilot optimistic ways forward, because I know what happens to institutions. They it takes them about two years to process devastating data. And I would much rather having I've learned from, you know, pattern matching, I'd much rather save that pain and frankly, the lack of progress. Um, and so I do think it's a good lesson on transparency. I want to just move back into the, the trust triangle for a second and, and, and also tie in tie in Uber. You you had said that, you know, hyper growth can create wobbly logic and, you know, logic, rigor of logic being one of the, the parts of that triangle. And that that was one of the issues at Uber, that often our logic is really sound, but our ability to communicate the logic. And, and I see that a lot, you know, with hyper smart people, crazy smart people who should be one of the most trusted individuals or trusted teams in their marketplace, just not making it there because their logic is strong, but their ability to communicate the logic is not as is not as and- great. Yeah, and that you know that comes across the same way as people who don't have great logic. So if you lose us in translation, 
we can't tell, oh, it's a communication problem. It may well be a substance problem. So it's it's super high stakes. Um, this the the communication problem is pretty once you see it, it's quite easy and quite straightforward to overcome. Um, and it is, you know, you probably have the same experience when you watch people that you know they get it. But you're listening and you're like, oh, my gosh, if I didn't know you got it, I would have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's it's like a tragedy. And it's also it's a small pebble. Like once you frame that for people, we like literally like what a you know, and I'm an operations mindset. But that just feels so tragic and wasteful for me, particularly when the prescription to overcome it is so simple. And you've said there's two ways. There's two ways to that we can communicate our logic, and you know, one being more more useful than the other when it comes to to making a point. Can you walk us through those those two ways? Sure. And I want to be super clear. This is only applies if you have a logic problem. If you don't have a logic problem, ignore everything I'm about to say. But if <laughs> but if people doubt your logic, um, your two ways of communicating are this beautiful storytelling where you take us on a journey. And it's got twists and turns and you ultimately get to the point. And it's really wonderful. But in the hands of a logic wobbler, you could lose us at every twist. You may even lose yourself at some of the turns. And so by the time you ultimately make your point, you may no longer have any witnesses for it. And that's super sad. So if you're a logic wobbler, I would say storytelling is out. And instead, start with the point with at least the scaffolding of your point and then provide the supporting evidence. Because if you lose any of us along the way, you've already made your point. Whereas the other, like, I mean, you would have said your point in the room and there are other people in the room, but nobody digested it. So move from storytelling, which we call an upside down triangle, a triangle with the point at the bottom to a right side up triangle, start with the point, then give the supporting evidence. But it's only for logic wobblers. If you, like get your logic and the beautiful people in the advertising agency that you recently spoke to the person who did the t-shirt contest. I'm sure they're brilliant storytellers. I don't want them to stop, of course, but only, only lo- logic must underlie brilliant storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we often talk about when, when it comes to building presentations, when it comes to building pitches, you know, you start, start with your point, Back it up. So we call it message metaphor meaning. Start with your point. Come with a with a story that backs up the point or a case study or an example that backs up the point. And then finish with literally the language, what this means for you is. Translate that point to their world. And by following that structure, as you said, if they're going to have heard the point up front. And if you get interrupted, something happens and you don't get to finish, which happens so frequently... You've already made your point. And it's so beautiful. But And then, you know, if you think about, but where are the times you've been captivated? And so I like to watch a lot of stand-up comedy. And I like, and it's, I don't know the point. I am so enjoying the journey. So I don't want to remove that from the world. I just want to put that forward as a super high varsity sport. And it also ties back into what you were saying about the self-awareness of knowing where you wobble in that trust triangle. Do you wobble on logic, yes. on communication logic? Do you wobble on authenticity, which we're going to talk about now? Yeah. Or do you wobble on, on empathy, the, that deep devotion part, that ability to be wholly present, pretend you're blind, use your voice? Um, 
So let's go to the authenticity wobble. And this is one that, again, I hear so many times. I want to... <laughs> I want to feel like it's me. This is the language that I hear. I want to feel like it's me. I want to share, but I don't know how much to share. I don't want to share too much. I don't want it to be inappropriate. I don't want to, you know, feel like I've just shared something that I then have to pull back because because I really wished I hadn't shared that. Yeah. And so I think, and, and so it's useful to think if you're on the, like anytime you're thinking, oh, I think this would be inappropriate. I'm going to go ahead and say, follow your instincts. Like if you're even if you're even hesitating, if it's even a question, I think just go ahead. If it's a question in your mind, just go ahead and not say it. Um, and then, so that's on the like, how much is too much? And there, I don't want anyone to be inauthentic, but I do believe in trimming. The other end, which is the part that I find quite, um, uh, it it is it, it, it's depriving for individuals and for groups is that. I don't feel comfortable bringing my full self. Like I like I'm going to keep a lot of me at home because I just don't know if I feel safe enough here to bring it. That's the part where we want to think about, well, how can I be more authentic? And the reason that authenticity is harder than empathy and logic is that I can work on my empathy and I can work on my logic. But my feeling safe enough to be authentic in this room, I have to co-produce it with the other people in this room. So this is the one I can't do myself. Like whether or not the rest of the room is creating the conditions for me to feel safe, I contribute to it, but so do others. So authenticity is the one reason it's harder to solve is that you can you can rarely do it all on your own and you have to do it with others. And that just means that and so what I try to do is coach people when you're feeling secure your job is to just put your antenna out for others that look like they aren't and your job is to be helpful to them so when when you have put the oxygen mask sufficiently on yourself so you're oxygenated your job is to look out for others but if you're like not feeling secure other people are certainly not your obligation. And so how this plays out in practice is I used to hear a lot that, you know, or observe a lot that gender is a women's problem or race is a black person's problem or a person of color's problem. And nothing could be further from the truth. Like we all benefit when diversity is brought in. Like we all benefit from the creativity and the innovation and the increased rigor. So we shouldn't disproportionately burden the diverse uh, with with the the hardship of diversity since we all benefit. Indeed, it should be the opposite. So I'm watching the Black Lives Matter movement, and one of the things that I'm most encouraged by is that we we are no longer solely asking black people to educate us about race. Like we're starting to realize that's super inappropriate. Like, like we're no longer asking black people to be the only people that solve racial injustice because they're, they're not the only people involved. In fact, why would we ask the people that are like super turmoiled by it to be the one? It's the rest of our job to really make a difference. So I am working harder on racial uh, injustice certainly than I am on queer rights. I almost feel like it's not my obligation for queer rights. That's the obligation of others. 
But racial injustice, man, do I feel that that's my obligation. You, you had said once that you, you're just tying back into um, authenticity and putting on your oxygen mask that you had been tempted at every step of your career personally and by coaching to mute who you are when you're around others. And it, it kind of got me thinking about, again, radical responsibility for the people who are around you and being able to be there for the people who are around you. What would you say now if you were the coach that you actually needed in those moments? Oh, I would have celebrated what was unique about me as opposed to giving the really well-intentioned but super unhelpful, here's how to fit in. Yeah, that, but that's what tends to happen, right? Yeah, and it, but it's the, like, if I could just, it's like one cautionary tale, words I'd like to remove. Please never tell anyone how to fit in ever again. As a leader, as a parent, as a friend. All of it, like, Instead, celebrate the uniqueness of each person. Well, you know, on that note, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you back out into the world to do <laughs> the the incredible work that you do and in the way that you do it. And I just I want to say thank you for you know the body of work that you bring is is just amazing and I know you continue to bring it every day just like wearing the uber t-shirt you continue to bring it every day <laughs> well and I'm you know thank you so much for uh for the opportunity uh to share these ideas and you know what I love most about interviews is when if I'm crouched down but I just get to be in the moment and respond to questions and uh I felt like I was in really good hands and I just got to respond to the questions and I found it uh super like I got to learn from the way in which you frame the question so thank you it's a pleasure thanks so much for listening I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence now for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice idea or brand in your space then I have good news you can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.